0: So that's Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 to 17, page 558. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Rem- Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, She Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smouldering stubs of firewood "'because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram "'and of the son of Remaliah. "'Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, "'saying, let us invade Judah. "'Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves "'and make the son of Tabil king over it. "'Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says, "'It will not take place. "'It will not happen. "'For the head of Aram is Damascus, "'and the head of Damascus is only Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you, house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. (laughs) Sorry.
1: Good morning, church. I'm Tash, and the second Bible reading today comes from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, and that's found on page uh, 783 of the Blue Church Bibles. Matthew chapter 1, starting from verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But he did not consummate the marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus.
2: Thank you. Uh, we've got to make sure we think about who we get to do different Bible readings, don't we? Let me, um, let me pray. Keep your Bible open there at Matthew chapter 1, and let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and your word is packed so with so much more than Uh, we can grasp or take in but we pray father that the particular things that you want us to learn and and know and believe and take heart today please open our eyes to see those things and to receive those things with faith in your son jesus and we ask it in his name amen there's an outline of the talk inside your information sheet if that helps some things are, are much harder than they seem at first glance aren't they uh, things like the chair challenge who's um, who's seen videos of the chair challenge no really wow it's going a bit viral we're obviously not quite up with things at the moment all right well I um I was gonna sort of embarrass a random person, but I decided I shouldn't, so I've uh, got a willing victim. I mean, I've, I volunteer here in Lachlan. So please give Lachlan a hand. We're going to... Lachlan doesn't know what this is, so he's never seen the chair challenge either. Let me explain it to you. The cha- Apparently, this is something that is much harder for men than for women, you see, the chair challenge. Uh, what you have to do... The, the idea is it's, it's to do with... St- oh, okay, come on back. I'll, I'll get you to demo. What you've got to do... Uh, you have to take from the wall three... Sorry, put your foot there, another one, and then back there, and then stand where that is. Okay, so one foot against the wall, foot behind, and then foot behind that one. Yeah. All right, and then you stand there. Right, now what you've got to do is you've got to lean down, bend over until your head is touching the wall, all right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, this is a real thing. Okay, bend, that's right, that's right. <laughs> and now you've got to take this chair...
0: Can I just
2: say, thank you for not choosing someone random. Yeah, yeah, good. Uh, so You've got to lift it up to your chest yeah. and then stand up. Yeah. So, come on, stand up. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you. Give him a hand. Give him a hand. Because, All right. Well done. If you look up the chair challenge later, you will see some women... They just go, that's so easy. What's going on? And yet, when I, I'm, I was like him. I can't do it either, you see. Uh, all right, apparently there are several theories. They don't really know why. Some people say it's because men's center of gravity is higher. Women's center of gravity is lower. And so when a man bends over like that, center of gravity is not over. Anyway, pff, whatever, lots of theories. The point is, some things are much harder than they look at first glance. Here's a strange question. How hard do you think it is for God to be with us or for us to be with God? How hard does that sound? Uh, Or how hard does it sound for God to save people? I think if you were to talk to a random person on the street, they'd say, yeah, that's his job, isn't it? That's what he's supposed to do, save people. Should be pretty easy. But the answer is, well, it's much, much harder than you ever imagined or could imagine. Uh, And today we're going to see that by going back to the beginning of the life of Jesus and seeing what I think is the most mind-blowing miracle in the history of the world, Because actually, that's what it took for God to be with us, the most amazing miracle in the history of the world. And as we look at this, we're not just going to find out what happened, we're going to learn how God spent thousands of years leading up to that to prepare us for the most mind blowing miracle in the history of the world, so that... We would understand it and in fact the first two chapters of Matthew's gospel are just exploding with prophecy fulfilled Old Testament prophecy which is fulfilled in Jesus and at every point when Matthew's talking about the birth of Jesus he keeps showing how this is fulfilling what happened or what it was what was said back in the Old Testament. Uh, so from now, I mean, till the end of December, we're in a little series in Matthew chapters 1 and 2, and we're particularly going to focus on what that looks like. How does how does prophecy work in the Bible, and what does it mean that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament? So let's get uh, into the passage, Matthew chapter 1, 18 to 25, and um, before we get to Jesus himself, I want to spend just a few minutes on the second most important person in this passage, who is not Mary a bit surprisingly, but Joseph, her husband, her, well, engaged at this point. Uh, Now, of course, Mary is important, and uh, Matthew starts in verse 18 by making sure that we know that Mary has not been fooling around, okay? She's not been misbehaving. She hasn't been unfaithful, even though she's now found to be pregnant. She's a godly young woman. But most of the focus in this passage is on her husband-to-be, Joseph. And uh, there are two main things that Matthew wants us to know about Joseph. The first one is that Joseph was a righteous man. He was a godly person. Okay, That doesn't mean he was perfect and sinless. He was a sinner who was forgiven by God's grace. But Joseph was a guy who sought to live his life Obeying God and listening to his word. Um, You see that in a few things. You see Joseph's godliness in the way that he breaks off this engagement with Mary. He thinks she's committed adultery and so he breaks it off. But he actually does it in a gentle and caring and kind way. And then after the angel tells Joseph this amazing stuff about what's happened to Mary, you see his godliness at the end in how he obeys absolutely to the last letter everything that God tells him to do through the angel. Joseph just does it and doesn't question. So he's a godly and obedient person. But why is Matthew focusing so much on Joseph in the first place? I mean, wasn't he was like kind of an accessory in this whole thing, wasn't he? Like he didn't actually have anything to do with the birth of Jesus directly. So why focus on Joseph and not on Mary? Um, Well, that's because of one tiny little detail that uh, Matthew wants us to know about Joseph. It's there in verse 20. I don't know if you noticed what the angel called Joseph when he starts talking to Joseph in a dream. He says in verse 20, Joseph, son of David, son of David, um, if you go back to verse 16, we've had the genealogy. Joseph's dad was not called David. He was a guy called Jacob. Uh, but Joseph was a direct descendant of the great King David from the Old Testament. He, was, he had royal blood. And in fact, he was David's great, 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 great uh, lots. I think you've got to count the 28 uh, greats. Grandson. Okay, he was a direct descendant of, of King David. And in the world of the Bible, your official family line, your official genealogy went by your father's line, even if it was your adoptive father. Okay, and In fact, kings in the ancient world, including kings in the Old Testament, would sometimes adopt a son to be their heir. Okay, So this is actually Matthew's first hint in this passage that Jesus comes to fulfill the Old Testament because his dad is the son of David. Uh, let's go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's on the, uh, on the screen, verses 12 and 14. Um, God says this to King David, Israel's great king. He says, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. And then in verse 14, I will be his father and he will be my son. Okay, so the Old Testament was looking forward to this king who would come from David's line and he would be known as God's son. Now, I reckon when most people read this, they would have assumed, oh, so this king will be like physically David's descendant, but in some kind of metaphorical, figurative way, he'll be God's son, as if God's adopted him as his son. Well, it turns out to be much, much more surprising than that. Okay, Jesus did qualify as David's descendant because his adoptive father, Joseph, was a son of David. Joseph was royal. But as we're going to see in the next point, Jesus was God's son in a much more direct way. So uh, let's leave Joseph there and move on to the real focus of this passage, which is Jesus. And in fact, more specifically, this passage is all about how Jesus was conceived and why that's important. That's not a normal question you ask a friend who's pregnant, is it? You know, you might ask, is it a boy or a girl? You might ask, so have you got names picked out? Have you got baby clothes? You might ask, was it a surprise? You don't normally ask, so how was the baby conceived? usually kind of take that for granted, you know. But in this case, no, you can't take it for granted because this was a miraculous conception. There are actually a number of uh, conceptions in the Old Testament which were miraculous and they were like uh, sort of signs or foreshadowing this miraculous conception of Jesus. Um, So, let me show you a few. Uh, Isaac, son of Abraham and Sarah, or Samson, the judge, Samuel, the first great prophet, they were all children who God miraculously gave to couples who were either too old to conceive or were infertile. These were miraculous conception. But all of them were conceived, well, in the normal way. Okay? There, was, there was a human mother and a human father involved. What does the angel say to the absolutely gobsmacked Joseph in verse 20? Verse 20. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take home Mary as take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. They are possibly the most astounding words in the whole Bible. Um, listen to it's not on the screen, but listen to how the angel tells mary that in luke's gospel luke chapter 1 verse 35 the angel says the holy spirit will come on you and the power of the most high will overshadow you so the holy one to be born will be called the son of god this is uh, one of the reasons why jesus is the son of god in a unique way in a way that's different from any of us because he wasn't conceived through the normal union of a human father and mother. His body was created directly in Mary's womb by God the Holy Spirit. It gets bigger, okay, it gets bigger. It's not just that God put in baby's womb a a new little person that he created. This was a body that was prepared for someone who already existed. Someone who is greater than the whole universe, who together with the Father and with God the Holy Spirit created everything, including Mary and that womb. This new little bundle of cells was a complete human nature, specially created for the eternal Son of God to enter our world. This is what we mean. This is why we say that Jesus is truly and fully God, And he is truly and fully man, human. That's what the virginal conception was about. It's better to say instead of virgin birth, virgin conception. That's what the virgin conception was about, this unimaginable miracle that the eternal God sent his eternal word into the world by having him take on a human nature and live our humanity. Okay, that's some um, pretty heavy theology, okay? Why is it important? Why is it important to believe all of that? Well, there are lots of reasons, but um, one of them is the next point, which is about the name that the angel tells Joseph uh, to give the baby when the baby's born. This baby, the angel says, this baby's going to be a saviour. No, 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 no. He'll be the saviour. The saviour. And for that, he must be God. So, uh, verse 21, have a look at verse 21. The angel says, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Right, Jesus is the Greek version of the Old Testament Hebrew name, Joshua. Okay, Joshua, Jesus, same name. Uh, And it means, the Lord saves. Okay, the Lord saves. Now, if you think to the Old Testament, there were lots of human saviors or deliverers who God sent to his people, weren't there? Uh, You can think about people like Moses or Joshua himself. They saved, delivered the people from slavery in Egypt and and took them to the promised land. Or you can think about the judges, Gideon and Samson and the others. They were deliverers who God sent to rescue them from uh, enemy armies. But even though there are all these mini human saviors in the Old Testament, it was very clear that God is the only true saviour of his people. Okay, sometimes he used human instruments, but God's the only one who really saves his people. So Joshua was named kind of in honour in honor of God, the Lord. He's the one who saves, okay? But look again at what the angel says about Jesus. It's, it's not just the name, it's the way the angel explains that name. Okay, he says, give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That sounds like uh, a lot like Psalm 130 verse 8. Let me put up verses 7 and 8 on the screen. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. See, the Lord's the one who's going to save his people, but the angel makes it sound a lot like Jesus is doing the saving. And the people he saves are his people. And this is a much greater kind of salvation. Remember, Moses and Joshua and all the judges, they saved people from the people of israel from physical slavery and armies jesus was brought, born to bring a much deeper and more important salvation to save us from the very thing that cuts us off from god which is our sin jesus came as the true joshua he's the real fulfillment of the lord who saves and that's why it's so important to know and believe what we saw before, that Jesus is fully and truly God as well as fully and truly human because God is the only one who can save us from our sins. But he did so by entering our world in his son to save us from the inside. He entered our experience in our life as the saviour. And to pull all of that together, just in case we're not quite sure that all of that's true, Matthew gives us the last and greatest Old Testament prophecy that Jesus' conception fulfills. But before we get to that, I want to take a little break. Uh, It's not an ad break. This is a little aside to think about prophecy in the Bible. And what is prophecy? How is prophecy fulfilled? See, I, I think one of the things is when we think about prophecies and prophecies being fulfilled in the Bible, we tend to think in terms of predictions. Okay, I, I might make a prediction. I'm going to make a bold prediction right now. Australia is going to win the first cricket test against New Zealand. Okay, it's not a very bold prediction. If you follow cricket, we're kind of pretty close to winning. But I could make predictions. And then we could see, does this prediction come true? It's be like Nostradamus apparently made all these predictions and some people think they've come true, I don't, but anyway. But that's, that's how we often think about prophecies in the Bible. They were predictions, kind of random things that might come true anytime, time, any place. They might have come true back in ancient Israel or in the days of the early church or they might come true in our world now and the events of nations and, and politics and wars and whatever. That's not what biblical prophecy is like. It's very different. Here's the most important thing. Biblical prophecy is always about Jesus. Okay? Prophecy in the Bible is always, one way or another, about Jesus. Okay, I suspect some of you are thinking, Stephen, come on, all of it? That's stretching things, isn't it? Let me chuck two verses at you. First of all, Revelation 19.10 this is what an angel says to the apostle John, Revelation 19:10. This is from the ESV. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Prophecy testifies to Jesus because the spirit is always testifying to Jesus. Second verse is 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20. 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are, yes, how? In Christ. Every promise God has made is answered in Christ. Now, um, that doesn't mean that it's always easy to see how Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. It's not always easy to tell. There are different kinds of prophecies. Sometimes their fulfillment is kind of complex or hidden until jesus arrived but this is the most important starting point to to realize there's this shape to the whole bible the old testament is all looking forward it's all pointing forward to something huge that god was going to do and that something huge is jesus it was and is jesus his birth and ministry and life and death and resurrection his kingdom and his rule now and his coming eternal kingdom. That is, the whole Old Testament is promise, it's God preparing and showing us what he would do and that whole promise finds its yes in the Lord Jesus. That's the Bible. That's the structure of the Bible. Now, if you're, uh, what that means is it, it doesn't really make sense to read Old Testament prophecies and look at how they're being fulfilled now in politics and wars and whatever it is. It, it doesn't make much sense because all of those prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus. We just need to understand how. And if you're still sceptical, if you're still saying, Stephen, that doesn't explain them all, hang in with me for this series because this is the kind of thing we're looking at through this series. Um, the, all the different ways in which Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus. Um, let me just mention a few of that way, those ways before uh, we move on. Okay, So the, there are specific predictions in the Old Testament that only have to do with things that happened when Jesus came. There's nothing else they can relate to. It's like a prediction. We're going to see one next week about where Jesus was born. It's like a simple prediction. But there are also more general promises. They're not specific predictions, but there are lots of promises. God keeps those promises in and through the Lord Jesus. But the strange thing is, very often those promises will have more than one fulfillment. Okay, there might be an initial fulfillment in some way in the life of Israel in the Old Testament, but it turns out that's not the big fulfillment. That's not the main one. The final true fulfillment comes in Jesus. Uh, we've already seen an example today. Uh, remember 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God tells David that his son, he will establish his son's reign. Well, David would have thought initially, oh, he's talking about Solomon, my son Solomon. It looked at first, there was an initial Partial fulfillment in Solomon, but that didn't really cover it all. And then when Jesus arrived, it turns out that the true fulfillment came in David's greater son, Jesus. Okay, but again, all the promises, one way or another, find their final yes in Christ. Uh, We're going to see an example in the final point. But as well as predictions and promises, there are also patterns in the Old Testament that point forward to Jesus as their fulfillment. Okay, Some people talk about these patterns as like types. A type means like a sort of a model, uh, like a model car. If you build a model car that's, you know, of a real Porsche, the, the model is the type. The Porsche is the one that you actually get in and drive if you're lucky enough, right? And there are lots of patterns in the Old Testament that show in an almost visual way what jesus came to do Uh, we're going to see a couple of brilliant examples in matthew 2 um, in the next few weeks but again we've already seen an example in this passage the miracle conception babies all these miracle conception babies in the old testament are like little pictures of the true virgin conception uh, which would be the son of god god become man You can ask me more about that later on. Like I say, we're going to keep talking about how prophecy is fulfilled. But for now, let's get back to the final confirmation that Jesus really is God become man in this passage. And as I said, that's the last, it's probably the strangest prophecy in this chapter, I think, uh, which is from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and a child called Emmanuel. A child called Emmanuel. We actually looked at this in detail last year. We went through the book of Isaiah. So if you want to refresh your memory later, you can go online, search on our website and um, find the sermon and listen again on Isaiah 7. But from our uh, first Bible reading, we're not going to read it all again now. In the context of Isaiah, this prophecy of a child called Emmanuel, it was actually a sign of judgment against the faithless king Ahaz. Uh, he was the king of Judah, Uh, basically Ahaz refused to trust that God would protect and defend Judah against these foreign armies. He he just wouldn't believe it. And so Isaiah, he's trying to help him believe, to trust in God. And so he says, look, ask God for any sign you want, God will do it. And that'll help you to believe. And Ahaz refused. He said, no, I'm not going to ask God for a sign. And so Isaiah says, ah, well, in that case, God's got a different sign for you. And that's where he says that a virgin would conceive and give birth to a son who would be called Emmanuel. It was a sign of judgment on Ahaz. And at first glance, when you read that, in fact, that was really helpful to emphasize Assyria because that was exactly the point I wanted. Thanks, thanks, Beck. At first glance in Isaiah, this prophecy of Emmanuel, it's not like a long-range prophecy of the Messiah hundreds of years later. It's actually a prediction about a child who's about to be conceived in Ahaz's time and who would still be a child when the Assyrian armies come and invade Israel during Ahaz's reign. And in fact, initially, this probably wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a virgin conception because that, uh, that word virgin in, in the Hebrew, it can just mean like a young, a young woman, uh, a bit like in older English, maiden could be used in that way, a virgin or just a young woman. So I think initially this was a prophecy about a child in Isaiah's time. No one's quite sure which child. It might have actually been one of Isaiah's kids that he was talking about or his future child. But as you read on in Isaiah, you start to realize, hang on, something doesn't quite add up. And it it seems like this prophecy is about much more than just this child, something much bigger and more miraculous than Isaiah's kids who are running around. Uh, Just one example. So chapters 7 and 8, Isaiah prophesies many years of darkness and judgment for the people of Israel and Judah. You get to chapter 9 and he says, but in the distant future the light of salvation will dawn in the land of Galilee. And how will that happen? Some of the most famous Christmas verses, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time and forever. See, if this is the same child, it's now a much, much bigger prophecy, isn't it? This is a child who is going to bring God's presence and God's eternal rule. Now, I think the people of Israel in Isaiah's day, they would have been pretty puzzled reading this. They would have gone, well, hang on, what's this talking about? Is this this talking about, like, this kid now? Or is this talking about some future child who's going to come? Well, the answer is both. Both. That is, there was an initial little sort of partial fulfillment in Isaiah's day, but the true fulfillment is in Jesus. Is in Jesus. and And God answered that puzzle in the most dramatic possible way when a woman who actually was physically a virgin conceived a child, the only one in history, the only time in history that's ever happened. And so that's why Matthew, after all of that, says in verses 22 and 23 back in Matthew 1 now verse 22 all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel which means God with us so everything the fact that Joseph was a son of David uh, the fact that Mary conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit alone, the meaning of Jesus' name, he's the Lord who saves, all of that was to show that this baby is the final, glorious, mind-blowing fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Jesus is God with us. And you know the most beautiful part? For anyone who trusts in Jesus as their Lord and hands their life over to Him, Jesus is God with us to bring blessing, to save us, to give us life. See, all through the Old Testament, God's presence, God with us, was actually a terrifying concept. Absolutely terrifying. Because of the problem of our sin, God's presence brings the fire of His judgment. But in Jesus, through his birth and death and resurrection for us, he came to to bring us forgiveness, freedom, salvation from our sin. And that means that for all those who hand their lives over to Jesus, Jesus is God with you right now. Jesus is God with us. Always. After all, at the very end of Matthew's gospel, that's what Jesus himself promised. The gospel finishes, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, sometimes you might feel his closeness. Um, which is a wonderful thing. But sometimes, uh, perhaps pretty much all of the time for you, you might feel nothing much at all. Isn't it good that Jesus' promises don't depend on our feelings? It's very comforting. Here's what the miraculous conception of Jesus says to you and me. The whole Old Testament, God planned it and set it up and laid it out, the whole history of his people, so that you might know this truth, In Jesus, as we hang on to him and trust in him, God is with us now, always, in his son. He's with us now as we gather around his word, as we encourage each other so that we can grow closer to Jesus and grow to know him more. He's with us as we go out into the rat race in our lives each day, facing the traffic and the horrible bosses and the struggle about speaking about our hope in Jesus, all of that stuff. He's, He's with us, always. He's with us whether we realize it at the time or not, um, strengthening and encouraging and loving and forgiving and sustaining uh, so much more than we ever know to keep us going on that path that will see us one day in glory where we will feel and know and see his closeness and presence with us always. Some things are much harder than they seem at first glance, aren't they? How hard can it be? The chair challenge. How hard can it be? Or much more serious things like saving us. How hard can it be for God to save us from our sins? How hard could it be for God to be with us? I mean, isn't isn't God everywhere? Again, I think if you ask the average person on the street, how hard could it be for God to be with us? God's everywhere. Of course he's with us. He's my mate. He's with me. Both of those things, God saving us from our sins... And being with us to bless us and give us life, they are the hardest things in the whole world. They're the most impossible things in the universe. And the proof of how hard they are is what it took God to achieve them. He couldn't simply magic our sins away because he's the perfectly just judge. He couldn't just whisk us up to his holy presence Because we would have been burned up instantly by by his holiness. What it took God was the most impossible miracle of all. That the eternal son of God, the personal, infinite, invisible word of God through whom everything was created, who is himself God, took on a fully human nature, entered our rat race. When the spirit of God caused a child to be conceived in a virgin girl, with no human father involved. And, and that's such an unlikely event. That's such an impossible miracle that God carefully laid out the entire Old Testament Scriptures and the history of his people to point forward in so many different ways to give us these promises and hints and patterns of what he would finally do in the Lord Jesus. And he did that so that you and I would know for sure when we see Jesus in the scriptures would know for sure here is God with us so that you can put your faith in him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for your love, which um, once again today we, we just see so often is so much bigger than we realize we thank you for your love and care and concern for us in laying out the scriptures in such a way that when we see Jesus, uh, we discover that all your promises are yes in him. When we see Jesus, we, we discover and know that um, he is the eternal word, your eternal son, who um, lowered to the lowest level for us, become a human uh, child, we grew up and died and rose for us. Father, thank you for all those ways in which you uh, brought yourself down to our level so that we might know Jesus and trust in him, so that we might be saved from our sins and so that you in Jesus might be with us always. Help us to hang on to those truths until Jesus returns. And we pray it in his name. Amen.